field crest towards Clanton. Um, turn around. I was driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. Attention at Columbus. Subject to 1074. Electronic identity aware. NCJA 1014. 10 quarters to 11, 1205. NCJA 1014. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. And while trafficking is typically perceived as a law enforcement problem, if unnoticed, its roots can grow deep into a community, causing widespread problems. Well, having this Spotlight Month provides opportunities for in-depth information exchanges between law enforcement and subject experts. And the Justice Academy is committed to being a conduit to help make that happen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. Our first episode on human trafficking focused on the work of the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission, the Academy's involvement in training, and how various entities in the criminal justice community are working together to identify the existence of human trafficking and provide victim services. In this episode, we'll peel back yet another layer of this very complex subject as we take an in-depth look at a specific case. Brandon Marquise Jennings was sentenced in June of 2019 to life in federal prison for human trafficking. From 2013 until late 2016, Jennings prostituted women and children in North Carolina and at other locations around the United States. We have reassembled the group responsible for the investigation and prosecution of this case. Erin Blondell is an assistant U.S. attorney from the state's Eastern District. Special Agent Glenn Covington with the Department of Homeland Security. Raleigh Police Detective Rob Pereira. Michelle Scott, a Victim Witness Coordinator, and Christine Long, Executive Director of the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission. Welcome to you all, and thank you for your time and various levels of expertise as we take our listeners through your involvements in this case. I don't want to waste any time and get right to it. Erin, let's begin with you. Can you give us an overview of the case, kind of the basic facts, the key players, the charges, and of course, the end result? Sure. Uh, This case began, uh, and Detective Pereira will talk about it more, but it began with a domestic violence call, uh, one of the victims in this case, uh, and she ended up reporting that she had been trafficked by Brandon Jennings. Uh, In the course of the investigation, uh, a number of victims were identified and interviewed. Ultimately, the jury at trial heard about six of those victims. Five of them testified, one did not, and the charges uh, spanned sex trafficking by force, fraud, or coercion, sex trafficking of a minor, several different federal transportation for purposes of prostitution offenses, production of child pornography, and using the internet to promote prostitution. The the trial in this case lasted several days. Uh, It involved a variety of different forms of evidence that we're going to hear about, as well as the victim's testimony. Um, The essential facts, however, were that Brandon Jennings would recruit victims, often people who were struggling or otherwise in a vulnerable position. He would usually romance them, initially developed a what they believed was a romantic relationship. He would then uh, be convinced them to prostitute for him, often under false pretenses. Once they were sort of in his clutches and in this relationship, he went through the classic cycle of violence with them. Sometimes he was loving, often he was physically or emotionally abusive to them. He took all of their earnings. 
He prostituted both adults and minors. The youngest minor in this case began when she was 15 years old. And then he would uh, continue prostituting them until they managed to escape. Often they struggled to escape from him and they would return to him. Often if they tried to escape, he would threaten them with physical violence. He would threaten their families. He would threaten their children. One of our victims in this case testified, for example, that security, that law enforcement had to step up security around the home where her children were living due to his threats. Ultimately, he was not ca caught for several years. He did this um, from roughly 2013 through uh, his arrest in December of 2016. Um, and even afterward, he continued to try to recruit victims to prostitute for him and otherwise um, tried to uh, keep up what he was doing and, and evade detection. Ultimately, he was federally indicted on 13 different counts. He was convicted on all 13 counts. As you mentioned, uh, the judge, the federal judge in this case, Judge Flanagan, ultimately sentenced him to five concurrent life sentences and over $1.88 million in restitution to all of these victims. So it was a, a hard fought case, an interesting case, and our team is very, very proud of the result. Well, what you described, I've heard associated with human trafficking cases before. Deplorable is the first word that comes to mind, but also it also sounds like a little bit of atypical. This is the way that human traffickers work, and that should be one of the first red flags to law enforcement. So speaking of which, Rob, how about, if, if you don't mind, please describe for us how this case first came to the Raleigh Police Department and how you began your investigation. Let's also talk about what kinds of information and evidence you started to gather as the case unfolded. Sure. So this case came to the Raleigh Police Department in early December of 2016 and it initially came as a domestic violence call line units field operations went to a call an open line where a female was crying and pleading for help the uh, units went they were able to locate the house but were not able to locate the victim at that point in time it took mr jennings into custody on an unrelated warrant the victim in this case, once Mr. Jennings had left the house, was able to file uh, or go to the hospital and then file a police report and told the officers how she had been assaulted. The As they asked more questions, she was able to identify Mr. Jennings as her trafficker. And that's how my unit, the investigations unit, became involved. We were able to talk to the original victim in this case for several hours at our first contact. And during that initial interview, we were able to gather some basic information, but we did not delve fully into the details because our first priority was at that point to get the victim medical attention, mental health services if necessary, and to put her in a safe location. But that interview did reveal some very interesting facts that we were able to follow up on. And that follow-up came through social media, it came through emails, and it came through phone extractions. And during the course of multiple search warrants and multiple contacts, we began to get more and more victims to tell us their story. This process took a very long time and the process was not easy for many of the victims, but we were able to establish a rapport, establish a relationship with them and earn their trust to tell us their story. And that's when the rest of the team really becomes extremely essential to the success of the prosecution. Well, we, we've got Michelle, and we certainly want to talk and focus a little bit more on those 
victims in just a moment. But first, we want to keep on with the investigative piece of it. Uh, Glenn Covington, a special agent with Homeland Security, gets involved at some point. So, Glenn, if you don't mind stepping in and discuss with us the, the federal-local partnership that you had with this and any other similar cases if you want to, but talk specifically about how you select cases for federal investigation and once you do, what that partnership begins to look like. Okay, so basically when I get a human trafficking case, it's gonna come from um, one of our local partners like Raleigh PD and HSI here in Raleigh. We have a really good working relationship. So when Rob gets all the facts or Detective Pereira or Raleigh PD gets all the facts, they will uh, contact me, we'll go over the case. He'll ask what other things they might need before we present to the US Attorney's Office. Uh, we might have to get a couple more search warrants or we might have to do a couple more interviews with victims because my AUSA in the case would, is uh, Aaron Blondell who handles these cases. And like she has trained Rob and I pretty well about what she wants and what she expects because usually we think we have everything we need and then Aaron gives us a list of 30 things we do. So as our relationship with Aaron and um, other AUSAs goes forward, we kind of whittle that list down to maybe instead of 30 things, we now have 15 things because we know what to, uh, to expect from Aaron, what she's going to want from us. So it makes it a little easier. I'm like, oh, we need to do this. For instance, we all know that Aaron, like if uh, like in the Jennings case, he traveled across the United States and we got the victims to tell us what hotels they stayed in. So we had to get subpoenas for that. So we automatically knew what we had to do before Aaron even had to ask. So it's uh, like we train the AUSA. She trains us in what we need. It's a real big unit that we, when it comes to bringing cases. And then we can't forget Michelle, um, our wonderful victim person that helps us with the victims. As investigators, usually once we get the information from the victim, then we, then Michelle is basically in charge of the victim. She takes care of the victim's needs and that Michelle will be the go-to person for all the victims in this case, which can be overwhelming at times uh, for investigators. It's hard for us to do our investigative work and also help the victims. So that's why Michelle comes into play. It's a very important role in this. And also we have uh, victim services that Michelle has hooked up these victims with. So that's a vital role also. Well, as long as I've got you at the microphone, I want to continue to pull on this investigative point. So I'll let you and Rob speak to these next couple of questions. As you said, Aaron's traveling across the United States to talk to victims. So I guess my first question would be, are victims always willing to work with you during your investigation? And what are some of the ways that you build relationships with them? Because I'm sure that's pretty vital to the investigation. Yeah, it is. And I think the relationship with the victim actually can be tied back to the evidence that I collect. So the more evidence that I collect on the front end, if I'm able to establish the relationship between the victim and the trafficker, if I can prove where the victim and the trafficker were, if I can establish other victims, it makes the victim more apt to continue our conversation because the victim knows that I've done my homework, number one, but number two, I'm not asking them to tell me their entire life story. I can point the victim in the right direction. I can say, I know you were here. Can you tell me more about this? And it helps their recollection and it might make them feel a little more at ease. 
So the very first part of working with my victim is not necessarily the interview with that victim. In this case, it was a domestic violence incident and we didn't have a whole lot, but once we kind of open that can of worms, we have to follow each thread. We have to follow each lead to its conclusion or to the best of our ability to that conclusion and then work with our victim. So I believe that if I do as much as I can on the front end, it makes them more susceptible to speak to us, not susceptible, but more apt to speak to us. But then when it comes to trial, and I'm sure Aaron can speak about, about it, I'm allowing the victim to tell the story in a way that's irrefutable. I have the physical evidence that links my victim and traffickers and other victims together. And it's no longer a he said, she said. This is irrefutable evidence that they can they can rely upon. It, it's incumbent upon me to make their life as easy uh, as possible. And no, not all the victims want to cooperate with us for a multitude of reasons. They have trauma bonds with their traffickers. They're, they've been through experiences that the majority of people cannot even fathom and the amount of physical pain and emotional pain that they go through. So when we say it's a team effort, it really is because I can't do my job if I don't have people to support me in the back. And I can't do my job be, and, and uh, without Glenn's help because I need resources from across the country and I just don't have that. And I can't, th these people will not get justice if Aaron's not there to take everything that I've given her and that Glenn has given her and make it into a case which is so obviously wrong and um, a jury can look at it and realize that a person needs to be brought to justice. Uh, also um, working these cases we have a well-oiled machine here with the four of us but with the victims it's important that when you're talking to a victim or at least in this case that you let them tell their story or as Michelle says their truth let them get it out and then go back and ask some more maybe probing questions, but they need to know that we as investigators, attorneys, whatever, that we actually hear what they're saying. And also, if you tell a victim something, you need to follow through. You need to be honest with the victim. If they need something and you can't get it for them, you need to tell them you can't get it for them. You can't lie to the victim because they've been lied countless times, not only by, let's say, Jennings or a pimp, but you have to follow through. You can't be like, oh, okay, I'll do that and not follow through. And that's very important, not with us as investigators. So when it comes to Michelle or Aaron having to do something for the victim, well, they can trust us. So now they can trust Aaron and Michelle. And that's vital to make sure that the victim is heard. She gets what she needs. And the emotional support comes from all the whole team, but mostly from Michelle at this during this investigation. And you know, the, the victim well, a lot of times have been conditioned to fear law enforcement because what we represent is jail time. It's separation from their family. It's separation from their children. So we, our very first hurdle is to take and break that stereotype and show them that we're actually here for their best interests and we do want to help them. And that our goal is not to put them in jail. Our goal is not to investigate a prostitution case. This is a victim-centered human trafficking investigation. And they're very, very different. And we need to ensure that we protect the victims throughout the entire process. And sometimes it takes more than one interview, two interviews, three interviews. We had a victim that was very kind of weary of us. She was afraid to come speak with us. And when she did, you know, she was high on drugs. And so you have to keep that in mind and just, you know, we finally worked through all that. We got her here. We talked to her. 
she was, you know, all over the place, but our next, during our next interview, she was right on target. She was fine. But a lot of these victims, they're drug addicts, they're on, they're addicted to alcohol. And so you have to work with all those things. But I think once they start trusting you and trusting that they're, that we as law enforcement are going to help them not only get through this investigation, but from life skills or whatever we can provide for them, like Michelle, she'll go, she'll walk a mile to help one of these victims. Well, you guys brought some very interesting points to the table and some that just go back to the basic police work one-on-one. First and foremost, that all-important relationship building with a victim. As Rob said, there, there's physical scars, there are emotional scars, and then, of course, there's the fear that, that they are in some type of trouble. And in some cases, I know you have to kind of work through those things, but that relationship building in something like this, I think, is key. And then I'm sure it kind of ends up being a, a critical part of the investigation. And I want to take that back to Aaron for just a moment. I'd like to talk about, you, you mentioned the charges already, but I'd like to talk about some of the evidence that made this prosecution successful. And of course, these guys have already talked about what it takes and, and what you ask from them to make a strong federal prosecution. Let's talk about those two things. First of all, what cases make strong federal prosecution and then the evidence that made this Jennings case so successful. Um, so I think the important thing to know about uh, federal human trafficking prosecutions is we have a variety of statutes that we can charge and tailor to a given situation. Um, not everything has to be somebody chained in a basement or somebody beaten within an inch of their life. In fact, I just wrapped a trial last week in which there was no violence. And we told the jury up front, you are not going to hear about anybody being held in chains or anybody being physically or violently forced to do anything. You know, we can charge, you know, any prostitution of a minor um, with an interstate nexus. And the short answer is almost everything has an interstate nexus uh, is, is federal human trafficking. Prostitution by force, fraud, or coercion is federal human trafficking. We can charge a variety of offenses involving transportation or travel across state lines for the purposes of prostitution. Uh, and so that gives us, you know, a, a variety of tools depending on the particular factual situation. And we used many of those tools in this case, including we charged in one count a production of child pornography. That's actually very common in these cases. You, when, whenever you have children in this in sex work. Uh, there's a great risk of the naked or uh, otherwise sexualized images being taken of them. Traffickers do it for many reasons. They do it for um, to advertise the victim. They'll show people those pictures. They do it to kind of further signify to the, the victim that you're mine, you're under my control. Uh, and so we charge that as well very commonly. What we look for in terms of federal cases is, you know, again, we we look at the variety. We're trying to make an impact in our communities. And so we really just work with with Glenn and Rob in terms of kind of do we have a, a strong story to tell? Um, and the way we build strong federal cases is um, as Rob and Glenn really talk so wonderfully about is first is the victim centered approach. You know, in this case, our first victim, uh, the victim who's the victim of the domestic violence, uh, she had been herself involved in, in prostituting a minor. Um, this was all at Brandon Jennings' direction. The jury heard all about this at trial. And so she was both herself victim and somebody who was involved in prostituting a minor. She was very honest about that. The jury heard her actually cry on the stand um, because of her remorse over this situation. But the victim-centered approach means hearing that story and, and keeping an open mind about why she was prostituting a minor. It doesn't make it okay. And nor did she think it was okay. 
but there's a huge difference between I'm going to profit off a minor and this person that has been beating me repeatedly and I'm terrified of has told me to do this and I'm going to do it because that's what he's told me to do. And I think as a prosecutor, um, it's a little bit of a different mindset than some other cases. You're dealing with a lot of shades of gray. You're dealing with people who are good people, but flawed people, and maybe have made some really poor choices, sometimes at the trafficker's hands, sometimes not. Uh, and it, the victim-centered approach means that we I, I approach my cases with an open mind. I approach my victims with an open mind. I try to use my best judgment, um, you know, compassionate, but at the end of the day, I'm a prosecutor. And so I think, and I think that's what juries want to hear at the end of the day. And that, so we take that very seriously. And Michelle's going to talk a lot more about what we do with our victims from our office standpoint, but it's that the victim-centered approach is key. And then the other thing that we do, and Glenn and Rob touched on this, is corroborate. The way you win federal human trafficking trials is through corroboration. So for example, in this case, I'm going back again to our victim of the domestic call. As Rob mentioned, she had managed during one of her assaults to leave an open 911 line. Uh, and you could hear for about 11 minutes her screaming as Brandon Jennings beat her. And the jury heard that. And it was one of the most powerful moments I've seen in my career as a prosecutor. We had a number of other uh, key pieces of evidence. We had uh, text messages on cell phones um, uh, from cell phones and from other evidence. Uh, two of our victims had both received almost identical death threats from the defendant via text message um, after they tried to escape. And he's and he it was pretty graphic what he threatened. It was almost identical, and the jury saw that. We, of course, had online advertisements. Um, most prostitution is advertised online. We get those records. Um, at the time, it was back the pa back page. Now it's skip the games and other such things. We had, um, you know, other victims can corroborate each other. Um, this is why we don't just take one victim story and say, okay, we're done. We interview. We, we ask them who else might have seen or heard this. Another thing that we'll do is social media. Uh, social media is, from an evidentiary standpoint, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, you know, Brandon Jennings had a Facebook account and we had him, we convicted him of production of child pornography based solely on his Facebook communications because he had very clearly solicited um, a sexual image from a minor child. Uh, and we could just show that to the jury. I mean, they didn't enjoy seeing it, but we, we could show that to the jury. And that was that. We had him on uh, Facebook records threatening our victims. Uh, we One, I remember in particular, he had told her she had she was one who kind of bounced back and forth. She would leave and then she couldn't stay away. And one time when he was trying to get her to come back, he basically told her, um, but you better be ready with your money because you owe me. In his view, any money that she had earned while she was not working for him belonged to him. And we had that on Facebook and the jury saw that. And it was just such a powerful statement of the hold that traffickers have over their victims. Um, we had jail calls. Um, Brandon Jennings was arrested, um, as you heard, um, at, on outstanding warrants, and he and our victim got into it on jail calls, and we had him telling her things like, I should have broken your bleeping neck on a jail call, um, and talking about beating her, and talking about prostituting her. Um, this was powerful evidence. And one thing about traffickers is they tend to be, it's, it's a pretty narcissistic crime, you have to be a pretty big narcissist to think that these people's bodies are yours for profit and that their minds and their bodies aren't as important as what you want. And so they can be pretty proud of what they do. We had him, he had made uh, videos that he posted on his Facebook account bragging literally about pimping these women and how they were nothing 
and how he lied to them if he made them think that they were anything. Um, and the jury heard all of that as well. So this is, you know, um, you know, Glenn and Rob are outstanding investigators. I'm very fortunate. We have a number of really great investigators who work these cases with our office. But what they did is they really followed the chain of evidence to support and corroborate our victims. And so by the time this went in front of a jury, our victims had each other's stories reinforcing them. And then also this tremendous supporting evidence that made very clear that they were in fact telling the truth. Well, earlier in your discussion, you mentioned the name Michelle, and of course introduced earlier is Michelle Scott, who is a victim witness coordinator. Michelle, I'd like to get you to step up to the mic for just a moment and talk about the role that victim services plays throughout the investigation and the trial. And if you can explain a little bit to our listeners about why victim services are such a vital part of a successful prosecution. Well, thank you. My role as the victim witness coordinator is to act as a liaison between the attorney and the victim. So what does that mean in a nutshell? So essentially what we are here to do is the attorney has their work that they need to concentrate on the law. The law enforcement officers, they need to concentrate on the investigation. So that way the victim witness coordinator is here to solely concentrate on the services that are needed to assist the victim. What's important when talking or working with a prosecutor and working with victims and working with law enforcement from a victim's perspective is that a victim, what's important to them is they want information. They need to know what's the status of the case. They need to know about, more importantly, one of the uh, important questions that they always ask is custody. Is the defendant in custody? They want to know that information. So that's what victim services is here for. So what we do is we align ourselves with the victims and we let the victims know that we're here to assess them 24-7. It doesn't matter what time of the day that they call me, whether it's the weekend, I am here to assist them and to answer their calls. One of the things that I always like to share with the victim uh, when, I, uh, when I'm speaking with them is I have to work along with the prosecutor. And one of the things that we do early on is let the prosecutor, uh, sorry, let the victim know why we use the term victim. Because when you're working a human trafficking case, one of the first hurdles that as a prosecutor or as a law enforcement officer that you're going to have to encounter and get over is the hurdle of calling the person a victim. So we explain to them that's what the law see them as. However, we have to use that term generally because it's the legal term. But we see them as a survivor. And once we tell the victims that, that they are survivors to us and explain to them, we may use these words interchangeably, you would be amazed at how they just transition and they understand because now that you have explained that uh, to them, they understand why we're using the word victims because we want them to thrive and we want them to be uh, survivors. 
Another thing I do is I let the uh, victims know that I am not law enforcement. And that always put them at ease to know that they can talk to me, but I do let them know whatever they discuss with me as the victim witness coordinator, that I must turn that information over to the prosecutor because this is not my case, but I am here to um, assist them. Another thing we always do is we have to explain our roles to the uh, victims, uh, what each person do and explaining those roles to the fullest. Because if you're sitting in a meeting with a victim, the first thing the victim is, uh, and this happens quite often, they will ask me, Michelle, who's that person sitting over there and why are they in this uh, meeting with us? So always explain your roles and what you do take the time out to talk to victims, to really listen to them, let them have a voice because prior to this time, their voice has been taken away by the trafficker. All they've ever been told is that control of what to do and how to do it. This is an opportunity for us to allow victims to speak and again, and to um, have a role in their uh, case. Also, what's more important too when you're working with uh, victims is to let them know that they're not in any trouble. Once you do that and you're speaking with them and letting them know that they're not in any trouble, you're going to get cooperation from those victims. So again, we're here. We will also connect the victims with an NGO, a non-governmental organization, so that we can work collaborative, co collaboratively in providing services to those victims. For example, it could be services as far as childcare, employment, housing, those types of service, legal services. Let us as victim witness coordinators work along with you to assist the victims in your case. If you don't take anything else away from what I'm telling you today, please take this away. When you are involved with the case, again, as the prosecutor or as the law enforcement officer, what you wanna do is get victim services involved early on. The sooner you can bring us into the case to us and allow us to assist the victims, the better it is for you that you can go on and do your legal work or your investigative work. And those are a little of the things that victim witness or victim advocates would bring to the table. Well, up to this point, I'll have to say that all of you have made this sound so easy and almost in a, in a Christmas package with a big red bow on top of it. But I'm sure there had to be some bumps along the way. So Erin, I'd like to bring you back in to talk about if there were any hurdles that you had to overcome to prosecute this case, and if you can speak more broadly about how you confront those difficulties. Sure. Um, like any human trafficking case, this one definitely presented its challenges. You know, the number one being, you know, as we've talked about, victims often are uncooperative. They don't want to see themselves as victims. They don't trust us or they don't, and they don't trust law enforcement. And they may not appreciate our prosecution. Some of them are still even often loyal to the trafficker. At a minimum, there's some great distrust. So that's, you know, that's number one, I think, is always the most challenging thing. But there are a number of, of kind of things that flow from that and some other issues as well. So when we meet with them, they're often going to be, and, and even often up until trial, there may be some mistrust there. There may be some reluctance to work with us. And we did have, vict our victims in this case were all over 
the spectrum in terms of their willingness to work with us. We had one victim who did not appear and testify at trial, all the way to a victim who was just really strong and supportive of the prosecution and kind of everybody else fell in somewhere in between. So the way we deal with that is we do try to, as Rob and Glenn talked about, we do try to investigate early and we try to do our homework. So by the time we meet, I meet with a victim for the first time, I have tried to do my homework to a large enough extent that I can show them A, that I know what I'm talking about, B, that I care about them and I care about the truth and I care about their truth and C, that if they tell me something that isn't so that I can kind of politely and, and with compassion redirect them back to what the evidence is, is telling us is the case. Um, you know, as I think Glenn mentioned a, a, an important point, which is, you know, we have to be honest with victims from the get-go about what we can and cannot do. Um, we don't lie to them. And I try to be very honest with victims from the get-go and build their trust really by earning it, by showing them that I will live up to the promises I do make, that I will always, that I, that I won't make promises I can't keep and that they can trust me to at least do what I have said I'm going to do to the best of my ability and with my enthusiasm and my compassion. You know, in some other common issues that we saw in this case and then we see often is, you know, often victims have other personal challenges that they have confronted or are continuing to confront. This can include criminal activity, drug use, um, you know, challenges with their custody situation, challenges with their mental health. And so the way we deal with that is, you know, again, Michelle is, is the main answer is our victim witness coordinator is just vital. And that's why she's so vital from the get go is if a victim comes to us, but she's still struggling with drug addiction, it's going to be much harder to work with her than if she's clean. And so if we can help her on her path to recovery, that that is, of course, good for her. And, and that, you know, I think victims for us always come first and their best needs, but it's also good for our case if we can kind of help get our victims to a point where they're in a better place physically and emotionally. You know, we're honest with the jury about that. And one thing that we try to do at trial is tell this holistic story. We try to educate judges and juries about the fact that you are not going to meet a lot of trafficking victims who are, you know, like you see in the movies on, you know, upper middle class girls living with their loving parents who are abducted and held in chains. That's not how this works. This is a crime that preys on the suffering and the weak and the vulnerable. And it can very much become an asset as trial as the jury comes to see them as you see them, which is strong people who have been through a great deal and who deserve so much better than this trafficker offered them. But it is something you have to educate a jury about. One way that we, you know, and, and one thing we have to deal with is not just that victims are uncooperative with us, but that they were very cooperative with the victim. Uh, the jury in this case saw texts where the victims were willingly coming back to him even after they had been physically abused. They saw smiling pictures of them with our trafficker. They saw branding tattoos that the victim let, let somebody put on their body. And, and again, you can explain this to a jury. And one thing I have learned in the course of trying a number of these cases is that juries are smart. They are human beings. And if you let them see the humanity of these cases, they're some of the most powerful trials that I have ever presented to juries. You can just see their reaction to our victims when you present it in the right way and you really let the victim's own story and their own humanity shine through and you become sort of a vehicle to share the victim's story to the jury. It really can be quite compelling and juries are very able to understand these challenges, but you really have to approach it from that mentality. Some ways that we approach some of these challenges, as I said, is is bottom line through the corrupt. This is why corroboration is so important. There's nothing the defendant can say when he is on a 911 call beating a victim or he's on a jail recording saying, I should have broken your bleeping neck. It, it becomes 
very hard and or if there are multiple victims all telling the same story. So that's why the corroboration piece is so important is it also helps to overcome some of these credibility challenges. As I said, victim services, victim services, victim services. That is probably the most important piece to get us over the finish line. We educate also sometimes this is a, a tip for the prosecutors out there. We call expert witnesses to explain it. The expert who testified in this trial and in many of my other trials is Dr. Sharon Cooper, who is based out of Fort Bragg. She is an extraordinary human being. She's a forensic pediatrician with a special expertise in sex trafficking and child sexual exploitation. So one other source of corroboration in these cases can often actually be law enforcement contacts. One thing that often happens is these victims contact law enforcement because they're engaged in prostitution or because it's a domestic violence call. And at the time, the law enforcement officers don't see the big picture yet. Um, and I'm not criticizing them. For example, we had a victim in this case who finally escaped Brandon Jennings in Colorado. And the incident that led to that it looked for all the world like a domestic violence call. Law enforcement showed up. They found some threatening text messages from this person who she claimed at the time was her boyfriend. And they intervened and they got her out of that situation. But what they didn't realize that he had been prostituting and in fact trafficking her. And so once the case came back, she was identified as a victim. We went back to those law enforcement officers and they actually testified at trial. And we were able to present that text message evidence that they had gathered years earlier. But again, they had not had the context for yet. And so this is something you want to go back and check your traffickers arrest history. You want to look at your victims arrest history because you never know what little detail might come up from that contact that can help improve the strength of your case. Another thing that we do is we accept our victims as they are and where they are. We want to help them. They know we want to help them, but I think you will go farther with them and with the jury but if that victim is still struggling with prostitution, you want to offer that help, but you can't force it. And that has to be part of the story. That's part of the truth. You know, there's the rape shield law. We take that very seriously. But it is okay to take these cases on when your victims are still imperfect human beings. I mean, everybody is imperfect in their own way. These victims often are struggling more than most. That is okay. It is very different than a robbery case or something. Juries become accustomed through the course of the trial to understanding who these victims are and where they are. Uh, the last thing I just wanted to touch on is we did manage to convict the defendant of production of child pornography and sex trafficking of a minor when the minor in question did not testify. And that's something I get often asked, can you do it if your victim won't testify? And I think the short answer is it depends. It depends on what the strength of the evidence is. But in this case, we both had the social media conversations where it was very clear what this defendant was going to be doing to this girl. We did have witnesses who could testify that she was 16 at the time. And finally, we had our other victim who I've mentioned who helped to prostitute her. And she got up on the stand and she was very remorseful. And she told the jury that it just haunts her that she helped to prostitute this 16-year-old. And so that was enough. The jury convicted him of those counts. And so you can overcome these hurdles and end up with a compelling trial. Well, just an awesome job of illustrating some of the difficulties that you encountered that somehow or another, you're able to work through those difficulties and come out with a successful prosecution. And I'm sure Robin Glenn had some bumps along the way too, but we're at a point where we need to wind this thing down. And you talked about Michelle and, and her value. And, and Michelle, I'd like to bring you back one more time to maybe look at the perspective of the victim and your work in this case, and maybe some of the lessons that you learned from the victim's perspective? Sure. As I stated earlier, the importance of victim services, I just cannot stress that enough. And as a victim witness coordinator or a victim advocate for some people, 
This job is more for me about working with the victim and making sure that they are successful moving forward in their life and making sure that they are on the right path for their healing journey. As we mentioned earlier, we like to meet victims where they are. And for me, getting to know a victim and getting to learn more about them and what they have experienced and the challenges that they have gone through in life is more important for me to try to stay in contact with the victims. And I often do that in many, many our cases. And doing so, I like to have an assessment about, you know, how are we doing or what can we do better in cases uh, moving forward? So I have permission from one of the victims in this case to actually share some of her experience directly from the Jennings case. And so what she has shared with me are some of the things that were helpful throughout the uh, investigation, the case, and some things that were not helpful. And as we all know, we can learn lessons learned from uh, some of the information that has been given to us from the victim. So So let's start with what she thought was not helpful in the case. So she stated as a victim going through the investigation, she felt like there were multiple interviews. She had to speak to uh, six different officers before she encountered uh, Rob. And speaking with those officers, she felt that what would have been helpful and more comfortable for her if she had a female officer in the room with the male officer, she felt that would have made her a little more comfortable so that she was able to tell her story. She also stated that for as training for law enforcement, for law enforcement officers to be trained on the distinction between who is a victim and who is a perpetrator? Because throughout her um, questions, throughout the questions that were asked to her, many times she felt as if she was the perpetrator as opposed to the victim. Next, she stated what would have been helpful to her is having an advocate. By having a victim advocate for her, she felt that she would have been, again, put at ease, she would have been able to ask that victim advocate questions that she felt like she wasn't comfortable enough to ask uh, law enforcement those questions. Again, she wanted to address safety and custody concerns because she knew that as she had learned with Jennings previously, one of the things that Jennings would do is he would beat other women in front of her to intimidate her to make sure that she would be a compliance victim so that she would comply with everything that he wanted her to do. So again, she would like for those safety and detention issues to be addressed early on. And lastly, what she felt was not helpful is that at the time that law enforcement was called, she felt that if she had a list of human uh, trafficking resources available to her, that that would have been helpful. For example, if she needed to contact the Polaris line, um, she needed a toll-free number to contact human trafficking resource. So let's talk about what she did think was very, very helpful to her. The First thing that she thought that was most helpful to her 
is that the agent in this case, uh, Rob, that he made a connection with her, he established a rapport with her, and that he trusts her. So that was the most important information that she wanted me to stress to you. Establishing a rapport, um, making sure that, that the officers trust what she's saying to them. She also stated that she was treated uh, once she encountered Rob and Dina uh, Hubble, that she was treated with compassion and they had empathy for her as she was telling her story. She also felt that they had an opportunity to listen to her story and not that they were trying to rush her through the story of what she had to say. And that was really, really important to her. She stated that they took the initiative to learn more about her rather than her story. So again, what we want to take away from this is to make sure that, um, again, we are establishing those rapports uh, with the victims and that we do show compassion and that we are listening to the victims and not treating the victims as if they are the perpetrator. So again, those were some of the issues that she wanted me to share with you all as lessons learned. Well, from the very beginning of this discussion until we put a period on it right now, just absolutely awesome information. And I've told cops over the years, there's really no experience better than the experience itself. And each of you has done a fantastic job of illustrating your different involvements in this case that made it the successful prosecution that it is, which has left that gentleman serving multiple life terms in a federal prison. Thank you all. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month throughout the United States. And on this episode of NCJA 1014, you've heard that it's not an isolated problem just in some geographic areas of our country, but is unfortunately very active here in North Carolina. For law enforcement officers, please continue to educate yourselves and maintain a heightened awareness on calls for service where human trafficking could be occurring. Additional resources, of course, are available on the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission website. Remember, the North Carolina Justice Academy is committed to helping in the fight against human trafficking, and a new episode will be posted weekly through the month of January. Once again, very, very special thanks to our panel of experts for this episode. And until our next episode, please stay safe.